Hello, this is Professor Leslie Garfield-Tenzer, and this is Law to Fact. Today we are talking contracts. In this episode, Professor Linda Fentiman of the Elizabeth Halb School of Law at Pace University talks about conditions. She walks us through the history of conditions and nicely explains how conditions are important and relevant to performance. At the end, Professor Fentiman gives a great example of a hypothetical that might appear on an exam, which coincidentally appeared on my 2016 exam. So there you go. Hope you enjoy it. So thank you for coming. I'm very glad to be here, Leslie. I'm thrilled that you're here, and I'm thrilled to talk to a fellow contracts <laughs> professor. Although you have rave reviews by your students, oh, that's very nice. I, I, they really do enjoy you a lot. All right, so we are going to talk about one of your most favorite topics, and to be honest, one of my least favorite, which is conditions and what conditions are, and how they factor into contracts, and how they factor into contract class. So, what are conditions? So, a condition, literally speaking, according to the restatement is it an event not certain to occur, which must occur before a promise comes due, that means an obligation to perform uh, comes due, unless the non-occurrence of a condition is excused. So let's state that more simply. A condition is a way of limiting a party's obligation to perform under a contract, and a condition can either be expressed, as in the famous case of Lutinger versus Rosen, right. in which a contract to buy a house predicated the buyer's obligation to perform to buy the house on his obtaining a mortgage at a certain rate and term. And because that condition was not satisfied, the buyer could not obtain financing then the buyer did not have to perform. That's an easy case. Right. Yeah, so you are obligated to uh, you are obligated to perform so long as you obtain a mortgage from a bank. Because that was in that the, case. In that case because that was an express condition that limited the buyer's obligation to buy the house, to go ahead with the purchase of the house on the closing date. So if I were to make it more simple. Yes. And I were to say I will pay you $100 if you mow my lawn on Tuesday so long as it is not raining. Then would you say so long as it is not raining is a condition? It's a condition, I think, that limits your obligation to perform. Okay. Because you, as I understand this condition, you are saying I will uh, pay you when you, Linda, mow my lawn on condition that it's not raining. Let's go back to Luttinger. Okay, okay, so, all right, so in Luttinger, the party signed a contract. The contract had terms about buying the house, but they also had a condition, and the condition said that the buyer does not have to perform the terms of the contract if the buyer could not meet a mortgage that hit certain interest rate, interest points. Right, that was higher than a specified rate. Okay. So I want to clarify that In a contract, there are many terms, and some of the terms are promises or covenants, and other terms are conditions that may limit the obligation to perform a promise. And sometimes a condition is simultaneously 
a promise. So, for example. So, for example, in the famous case of Jacob and Young's versus Kent, there were many terms in this contract to build a very fancy country house right. by the contracting firm Jacob and Young's, and the owner was Kent. And one of the terms of this contract was that Reading pipe, a certain kind of uh, pipe, be used for the plumbing throughout the house. And due to the negligence of the contractor's foreman, it turned out that about three-fifths of the pipe installed in the house was not Reading pipe, but Cahoe's pipe, which was functionally equivalent in strength and durability and quality to the Reading pipe. But when the owner of the house found out that the plumbing was not 100% Reading pipe, he asserted that the use of Reading pipe was a condition that limited his obligation to pay the final uh, amounts due to the contractor. And so the question that Justice Cardozo had to decide was whether this condition, this term, which was a promise on the part of the contractor, I promise to use Reading pipe throughout, and was it also a constructive condition of the owner's obligation to pay the contractor for the work he had done? And Justice Cardozo, in one of his colorfully uh, convoluted yet brilliant opinions, said that it was up to the court to decide in a particular case whether a promise under a contract was also a constructive condition of the other party's obligation to perform his promises. And Cardozo talked about the fact that if it is a simple sale of commercial goods, of chattels, then the old-fashioned perfect tender rule Mm -hmm. applies. And and, And, and perfect tender means that you have to have deliver exactly what's promised. Yes. That's perfect tender, yeah. Yes, the the seller has to deliver exactly what is promised, Mm -hmm. and the buyer has to come up with the cash at the moment of delivery. So it's perfect tender on both sides. Uh, so Cardozo distinguished the contracts or sale of goods in which the seller's performance was a constructive condition of the buyer's obligation to pay and the situation in which skyscrapers were erected or more complex buildings where uh, the court would be loath to infer a simple promise under the contract was also a constructive condition of the other party's promise to perform. And the reason that Cardoza was so concerned about was his concern about forfeiture because the contractor uh, would forfeit all the work he had done completing this very fancy building if he did not have to 
if the owner did not have to pay him due to this construction of a condition. So, all right, so I'm going to take you back to kind of a basic walkthrough. Yes, Because one of the issues that students have with that particular case, one else particularly, is their understanding is that if a party does not meet an obligation of the contract, it's automatically a breach, right? So that's one, you know, technically, technically. Yes, but it could be a partial breach or material breach. Right, okay. That's very deep. Okay. <laughs> <I> respect that. <laughs> I'm not as deep. Okay. So anyway, so yeah, no, that's good. Um, all right. So let's say that there is a contract between the two parties, and in the contract, the buyer of a house specifically says, I want Reading pipe. Right. And the contractor puts in Cohoes pipe. Right. And the contractor puts in the Cohoes pipe. Not for any reason other than that's what he had in the office. Right. He didn't think it was that big a deal, what have you. Right. Technically, right, wouldn't you say, or maybe you wouldn't, that if this were considered a term of the contract, a term, that by not meeting that term, one could argue that's a breach. It might not be a material breach, you're right, which is like the breachy breach, but it is a breach which would give rise to excusing the other party, or to damages. So here's my question. If the, if, if the owner of the home really wanted Reading Pipe, right. he knew the Reddings, right? Right. right. <laughs> and he said, this is super important to me. And the contractor put in Cohoes Pipe. Right. Not willfully, just kind of that's what was in the office, right. and he didn't think it was a big deal. Right. If this were a promise, yes. right? Then the builder breached the promise. And it is a promise. The question is, so this is a, in Jacob and Young's versus Kent. This contract is very long. There are right. more than 100 promises right. that the builder made and the owner made less promises because his promises were mostly about paying money. Mm-hmm. The question is, is this promise to use Reading Pipe also a condition, a constructive condition, a a court-created, construed condition that limits the owner's obligation to pay. And in we just need to back up about 500 years right. and look at the olden, olden days cases in the United Kingdom, Kingston versus Preston, in which before Kingston versus Preston, the rule was that in a contract, for example, a contract to sell a cow, going back to our perfect tender example, if you were the seller of a cow and I am the purchaser, if you show up with a cow and and I don't come with the money... You can't say, well, then I just won't deliver the cow. My performance is excused. Actually, you would have to sue me for the $100, but you would still have to deliver the cow to me. That's the olden, olden way in which they were independent promises, independent covenants, they were called then. So each party had an obligation to perform regardless of whether the other party performed under that for purposes of 
being clean in order to bring a lawsuit against the person who failed to perform. Yes. So in the olden days, each party's promises were independent and could be sued and could be sued upon for breaching those promises. Right. In Kingston versus Preston, what the court did and Lord Mansfield said was that we have to look at the sense of this contract. In that case, it was a merchant selling his business to an apprentice, and one of the apprentice's promises was to give good and sufficient security mm-hmm. for the business before he could take the goods. Right. And in that case, Lord Mansfield said, it, the only way this transaction makes sense is a business proposition is that the apprentice would have to give security for the goods before the merchant had to convey his property to the apprentice. The idea was they were now not independent covenants, right. but dependent covenants, mutual dependent covenants, and constructive covenants. And Lord Mansfield also stated the rule that, in that case, the person who had to pay had to perform first. And one party's performance was conditioned on another party's performance. Yes, by construction of the court. The court took these promises, these mutual promises, and said they are also mutual conditions. Got it. That on which each party's performance obligations were hinged. Language may be so explicit that we could call it an express condition. For example, a clause that says, on condition that XYZ occur, that is an express condition that clearly limits one party's obligation to perform. Or, but more often it is an implied condition. So one kind of implied condition is what we've just been talking about in Jacob and Young's versus Kent, where the court has to ask, is every promise, every covenant also a constructive condition which has to be satisfied before the other party's promises come due or need to be performed? The other area of the law in performance and breach that's so interesting is where the court implies a condition that the thing continue to exist. And so that is the foundation of the impossibility doctrine in Taylor versus Caldwell, the case where uh, the Surrey Gardens right, burn. burns down, the court and the, the parties had made no provision for what would happen. Uh, if the buildings and gardens no longer existed and the contract was completely silent on that point. But there the court implied into the contract the implicit condition that each that would li- uh, limit each party's obligations that the thing, the buildings, would continue to exist. So the idea in the impossibility or impracticability cases and similarly in the frustration of purpose cases is that the court reads into a contract a condition that has no mention Mm -hmm. of it. And it's not a promise. The court implies it from outer space into the contract. Oh, 
that makes total sense. A non-foreseeable condition. Yes. Okay, so let's return to your great history lesson. Ideal history lesson. Yes. So we have the first case which says promises are independent. This is the, going the back. The old common yeah, law. The old common law. Um, and, I, and then we have the case that says, well, wait a second. These promises are dependent upon each other. That one person's obligation to pay is a condition for the other person's obligation to deliver the good or whatever the other right. person's obligation is, right? And that's now the law. And then we have Jacobson Young versus Kent, right? Right. Where we have in the contract many, many promises, one of which is to include Reading Pipe, which we're going to assume was important to the buyer of the home because it was specifically the type of pipe was listed. Yes. And then the seller put in the co-host pipe, I mean the builder, right? Right. And the buyer is now suing because he didn't get what was promised. Yes. And so he's suing because he didn't want to getting promised. And then the judge is saying... The judge is saying, in order to decide whether this promise to use Reading Pipe is also a condition of the owner's obligation to pay for the contractor's work, we have to look at the nature of the contract. And so, I'm going to quote Cardozo here. Okay. Great. The courts never say that one who makes a contract fills the measure of his duty by less than full performance. They do say, however, that an omission, both trivial and innocent, will sometimes be atoned for by allowance of the resulting damage and will not always be the breach of a condition to be followed by a forfeiture. The distinction is akin to that between dependent and independent promises or between promises and conditions. Some promises are so plainly independent that they can never, by fair condition, fair construction, be conditions of one another. Others are so plainly dependent that they must always be conditions. And this is the really interesting part. Others, though dependent and thus conditions when there is departure in point of substance, will be viewed as independent and collateral when the departure is insignificant. And then the uh, Judge Cardozo says the margin margin of departure within the range of normal expectations upon a sale of common chattels will vary from the margin to be expected upon a contract for the construction of a mansion or a skyscraper. There will be harshness sometimes and oppression in the implication of a condition when the thing upon which labor has been expended is incapable of surrender because united to the land. So. Here, Cardozo was saying, as he often does, there's no hard and fast rule. Right. And so it's a matter of justice whether a term in the contract is viewed both as a promise and a condition or only a promise, the breach of which will give rise to a remedy and damages. So that and therein lies the difference that a promise the breach of which means the other party is entitled to a remedy. Yes. Which, by the way, a remedy, not to confuse everyone, could also be just not having to perform. That's sometimes a remedy in sales, at least. UCC, that's one of the list of remedies. But Right. And, he, and here the owner is saying he doesn't have to perform right. 
because it was not only a breach of the contractor's promise to use Reading Pipe, but also a condition of the owner's obligation to pay. And since the condition has not occurred, the contractor did not use 100% Reading Pipe throughout the building, then the owner says his obligation to perform, pay the last bit of money due, is excused. Perfect. That's it. So a promise gives rise to a breach, which gives... Breaking a promise. Breaking a promise. Breaking a promise gives rise to a breach, which entitles the non-breaching party to damages. Breaking a condition... No, the non-occurrence of a condition. Okay, sorry. Okay, the non-occurrence of a condition gives rise to excusing the other party to perform. Yes. Perfect. So on an exam, if students were to get a hypo, and I'm going to give the hypo that... Bob asks Jim to build a swimming pool. He wants the swimming pool to be aqua. The builder builds the swimming pool, and instead of it being aqua, it is navy blue. Yes. Bob doesn't want to pay because navy blue is not aqua blue. So the question, if we apply the reasoning of Jacob and Young's versus Kent to that case, we would ask whether... It's certainly a promise. Right. The contractor has promised to you to paint the, the swimming pool aqua blue. And the use of navy blue paint is a breach of promise right. entitling the owner to damages. However, the court would have to decide whether this promise is also a constructive condition that would eliminate or excuse uh, the owner's performance of paying whatever else he owed to uh, the contractor of the swimming pool. And so Cardozo would look at the significance of the departure, the extent of forfeiture, etc., and decide whether it is both a condition and a promise. A slight variation on your hypo is that Bob promises to build a swimming pool that is seven feet deep at the deep end, and by error, he builds it only four and a half feet deep. And the question there, again, we have the promise about the depth of the pool Mm -hmm. and the breach of the promise because the pool is now too shallow, The question would be, is that imperfect performance, would it still count as substantial performance because it is close enough Mm -hmm. to what uh, the owner wanted from the pool or because the difference between four and a half feet and a seven foot deep pool might really change the way that the pool could be used by the owner and his guests, would it be seen as not substantial performance? And then there would also be a question about how to measure the damages, whether by the cost of completion, totally ripping out the swimming pool and digging a new, deeper uh, foundation for the swimming pool, or simply the difference in value between a four and a half feet deep swimming pool and a seven foot deep swimming pool. 
And do you know that that question was on my contracts, my 2016 contract I exam? Didn't. It was. I did not. <laughs> so what a perfect way yes. to end. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you, it Leslie. Really great. And I, great discussion. Thank you. And thank great you very much. Thanks. So that's our discussion of conditions. Hope you enjoyed it. And thank you to www.bensound.com for the music. If you're enjoying our podcasts, please subscribe on iTunes. Or if there's a professor you'd like me to speak with or a topic you'd like me to cover, tweet me at Lord Effect on Twitter. That's it for today. Enjoy your day.